Well, welcome to Confessing the Faith, a podcast devoted to discussions concerning Christian doctrine and the Christian life. My name is Joe Anity. I serve as pastor at Emmaus Reformed Baptist Church in Hemet, California, and I'm joined today by Stephen Lindblad, who serves as pastor of Trinity Reformed Baptist Church in Kirkland, Washington. Uh, Stephen, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's good to be here. Uh, glad to do it. Uh, glad to... Um give some tangible expression to our, not only our fellowship in Christ, uh, but having met you at, uh, I think at, the first time I met you was at a either Southern California conference or at an ARPCA General Assembly. And in either case, um, those are uh, ecclesiastical uh, communions, contexts. Uh, and so it's uh, it's good to to be a part of this and to give tangible expression to our unity in Christ and to our our unity in the context of uh, the church and our own ecclesiastical small ecclesiastical context. Yeah, I agree, brother. One of the purposes of doing this is to not only expose our people to different theological issues, but to also give them a sense of the broader. Um, associational community that we're a part of. Um, I think this is a really nice way to expose uh, the people at Emmaus Reformed Baptist Church to that. And so I do appreciate it, brother. And the subject that we have for today is a very important one, one that I think is very interesting. Um, It's actually one that ARBCA has written a position paper about. We'll be talking about the regulative uh, principle of worship. And uh, the listener should know that I'm trying to record an interview on each of the subjects addressed in ARBCA's position papers. Um, ARBCA has written a position paper on divine impassibility. I was actually able to interview uh, Sam Renahan on that subject back in episode 30. Um, Also, we have a position paper concerning the regulative principle of worship, which is what we're dealing with today. And there's also a paper concerning the continuance of revelatory gifts in the present day. I need to find someone to interview on that very important subject, brother. Um, But what I'm trying to do here is to um, not only put these papers before our congregation, but to also, um, you know, provide some clear teaching on each of these subjects. Um, we're currently pursuing membership in ARBCA. In fact, we have a interview set up for next Tuesday. Uh, today is Friday, February the 16th. Um, and uh, so, you know, it's very timely. I think our people will very much appreciate um, some teaching on these subjects um, but Stefan, before we get uh, to the regulative principle of worship, I wonder if you would uh, be willing to tell us a little bit about your own history and also uh, the history of the church there in Washington. Um, would you tell us first of all about your family? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm married with three kids. Uh, my wife, uh, Joanne, or Joe, which she goes by, um, teaches uh, in addition to being uh, uh, a wife and a mother, teaches at a local Christian school uh, that our kids are thus able to attend. Um, I, uh, I have three kids. Uh, Emily uh, is 14 in eighth grade. Grace is 12 in sixth grade. And my son, Owen, uh, is nine and in third grade. Um I also, uh, we have extended family that, that lives in the area, and uh, so my parents are here in the, in the greater Seattle area. Uh, they're also members of the same church. Uh, my brother is as well, um, and so uh, 
you know, got a lot of family in the area and family in the church. Um, so it's very good. Hmm. Our situations mirror uh, one another. We, um, we have four kids, 14, 13, 11, and 9. My wife is hmm. also a teacher. Ah. Uh, she teaches um, the fifth grade at a uh, local um, public charter school. Oh, my uh, wife also teaches fifth grade. <laughs> all right, brother. Well, there we go. Yeah, so yeah. We're, we're, we're in a very similar uh, season of life to one another. How, how did you come yes. to faith in Christ? So I was raised in the church. Um, I mentioned my dad. Uh, he has uh, been a pastor now for, oh, I believe it's coming on 45 years. Um, and uh, so I grew up in the church. Uh, grew up in a Reformed Baptist church uh, and heard the truths of the scripture proclaimed uh, faithfully uh, all of my life. Um, and uh, it was really in my later high school years uh, that the Lord began um, uh, working uh, savingly uh, in my life, uh, laying me bare and all of my sin and uh, causing me to see uh, my need for Christ. Um, and, you know, I can't point to a, a specific uh, time, uh, a specific moment or event, um, but it was uh, really, you know, my later high school years where um, a growing sense of conviction of sin and a need for the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and uh, so it was in my senior year of high school uh, that I uh, professed faith in Christ and uh, was baptized and uh, added to the church. Now, I know that you, uh, you, you co-pastor with your dad. I do. Which is a unique uh, situation, I'm sure. Yep. And yep. then as I was preparing for this episode, I realized that he had a lot to do with the writing of this position paper on the, regulatory, uh, on the regulative principle of worship. Yep. And so I thought I probably need to ask him for forgiveness for not asking him to record this episode <laughs> with me. I hope he's not offended. It's just I no, had, a, I had that uh, personal connection with you. I really haven't had, had much um, of a personal connection with your dad. I hope to develop that in the, in the years to come. Well, he also, at the time that this was written, he served on the, the theology committee of ARBCA. And that's um, the committee that has responsibility for drafting these uh, position papers. Uh, and then they're put before the assembly. Um, their you know, questions are raised. Uh, particular statements might be fleshed out or or worked out uh, in the context of the assembly, uh, and then they're adopted by the assembly. Um, but my dad did have involvement uh, with this particular paper on the re- regulative principle, but he also was involved in uh, drafting the uh, um, the paper on uh, revelatory gifts. Okay. And so uh, if we can figure out how to get a technological Luddite to uh, get <laughs> Skype going, um, then uh, maybe he can be uh, your interviewee for, for that paper. Oh, that would be fun, actually. I'd, I'd yeah. really enjoy that. Well, how did the Lord call you to the ministry then? So again, much like my uh, coming to faith in Christ, uh, being rather ordinary and uh, unspectacular, uh, I think my call to the ministry is is 
functions in this or plays out in the same way. Um, I was in college and early in my college years, uh, I had pretensions of going into uh, sports medicine, physical therapy, uh, but had a educational crisis in that uh, some of the courses necessary for that uh, that study, uh, that field uh, really didn't uh, suit me or I did not suit them, however you want to see it. And uh, so I began asking the question, uh, what do I want to study? Um, and it wasn't so much the question, uh, what do I want to do with my life? Um, but what do I want to study? I'm here at college. Uh, I'm paying a lot of money for school. Uh, I attended Seattle Pacific University, which is a, a, a local, um, it's a, it has its background in the Free Methodist Church, but uh, broadly evangelical. Uh, and so I, I started wrestling with, you know, what do I want to study? Uh, sought some guidance from my dad, my pastor. Uh, and he began uh, just giving me tips on on what it, you know asking me questions. What do I want to study? What am I interested in? Um, and so I began taking courses in history, uh, began taking languages, uh, and then it was into my sophomore year of college where I really started to ask, okay, now that I'm majoring in history and classics, uh, what am I going to do with this? Um, what does the Lord want me to do with my life? And as I began wrestling with that question, uh, the question about the ministry occurred. And um, I began, began seeking counsel uh, and prayerfully considering a call to the ministry. Um, and so it was probably my junior year of college that I came to the conclusion that uh, I should at the very least, give theological education uh, a, a go. And once that um, became apparent that that's the direction I was going to go, I, I really was wrestling with a call to the ministry. And um, as you know, and as others have probably heard before, there's at least two aspects to a call to the ministry. There's that internal call. There's that desire uh, to preach and teach the word of God for uh, the the good of the church. Um, and then there's the external call, which is the church actually, uh, a local church actually extending a call and uh, setting apart a man to the work of the gospel ministry. And uh, I, I really wrestled with that internal call and I was given opportunities in the, in the church uh, to teach uh, and to preach, and uh, that desire uh, to seek the office uh, of of a pastor and to seek that work uh, really uh, began uh, and was kindled uh, and uh, nurtured in the context of the local church. Um, and then the church itself, after my theological education, uh, extended a call to me. Uh, thus fulfilling that that external calling. Hmm. Would you tell us a little bit about the church up there in Washington? How are things at, at Trinity? Um, you know, how did the church come into existence? Wh- whatever you'd like to share on that point, brother. Sure. So the the church uh, started as a uh, 
a, a Bible study, really. Uh, and there were a group of about five or six families that had uh, left a broadly evangelical uh, Baptist church in the area. And they were meeting together um, on Sunday nights to listen to sermons. And they had one of the, the families involved in that had a connection to uh, another Reformed Baptist church here in the Northwest, uh, Providence Reformed Baptist Church in Tacoma. Uh, it's an Arbka church. Uh, Tom Lyon is the pastor. Uh, and this is probably around 1992 or so. And um, my dad was pastoring another church in the area at the time. And this small group decided that they wanted uh, to make a go of, uh, of being a local church. So uh, through Providence and, and through my dad, they were having pulpit supply come in um, a couple of times a month. And then the rest of the time they were listening to tapes. So after about a year of doing that, they decided that if, if this was going to going to going to go if it was going to work uh they needed to call a pastor and uh after prayerful consideration they extended a call to my dad uh and the church began uh holding uh public services uh in uh january of 1993 uh they met for a year and then constituted formally as a church in 1994 uh, with, I think there were about uh, 20 members at the time when they constituted, a little over 20. Uh, and for the last now 24 years or so, uh, the church uh, has been uh, meeting. We, we started out in a suburb of Seattle called Linwood, uh, for a short time and then moved to Kirkland where we are now. Uh, and we've been in Kirkland uh, for the better part of those those 24 years in existence. Uh, my dad has been a pastor there for that entire time. Uh, and I was called uh, to serve the church uh, in uh, 2002. Uh, so I've been there since since 2002. Well, I appreciate that overview, brother. It, it does help to give a sense of uh, who we're talking to and um, how, how life is up there in Washington. Um, sounds like you're outside, so the weather must be pretty nice, huh? Uh, it's it's not great, but at least it's not <laughs> raining right now. <laughs> okay. yeah. yeah, I think it's freezing here right now. I think it's like uh, 67 or something like that, you know, uh, so we're all I, cool. It's, it's low 40s, so I have multiple layers on. <laughs> <laughs> all right, cool. Well, thank you for that, brother. And uh, let's get to the the topic at hand, which is the regulative principle of worship. I wonder if you could just begin by giving a definition of the uh, regulative principle of worship for the listener. Sure. Uh, I think the, the key word is regulative. And uh, I would define the regulative principle of worship as simply this, that the triune God regulates his worship in the church by his revealed will. So he regulates the worship of the church according to Holy Scripture. 
And so the church worships God uh, by doing everything that he commands in his word regarding worship and only what he commands in his word regarding worship. The question about worship is not uh, what we may do, but what we must do. I think uh, a lot of times discussions about worship get entangled because the, the category of the word that we try to use for worship is the word permission. And that's the wrong word. The right word is required. What does God require in his word? And when we ask that question, we come to discover that God regulates his worship, not in a vague manner, but he does so authoritatively, he does so sufficiently, and he does so clearly. And he does that by his word. If his word is clear, if his word is authoritative, if his word is sufficient, then what he says about worship and what we ought to do in worship uh, is also authoritative, clear, and sufficient. And thus, when we begin to dive into the scriptures and ask, okay, what's here? How does God regulate his his worship according to his word? We come to discover that worship is simple. Um, that is that it's not cluttered with a bunch of ceremonies, but it's uh, has everything to do with the word and the preaching of the word, the singing of the word, the praying of the word, and the seeing of the word in the sacraments. Uh, and as worship is spiritual, it's the act, the spiritual activity of God's people uh, worshiping a God who is spirit. I think that's well said. Um, so I don't think any Christian would, uh, you know, disagree with this statement that God is to be worshipped. Uh, Correct. But many do disagree over the question, well, how? Uh, how is he to be worshipped uh, in this new covenant age? How, how would those who disagree with the regulative principle of worship answer the question, how is God to be worshipped? So. <laughs> A lot of people do disagree with this concept. I, I think those yes. who hold to it are, are definitely in the minority uh, today. But how would they go about answering the question, how is God to be worshipped, if they're not using the regulative principle? Well, I, I think at some level, any believer, any Christian would affirm, okay, that God regulates his worship. So God, God tells us what is pleasing to him. The problem becomes when we say, how, how does God do that? And the differing answers come when we, when we ask that question. Okay, how is it that God regulates his worship? And for Reformed Christians, uh, holding to the regulative principle, the, the, the answer is it's by his word. That word is authoritative. And you get differing principles typically uh, when um, someone comes along and says, well, God regulates his worship by, yes, by his word, but he gives the church authority to um, not only implement that word, but to um, even add to that word 
according to the customs of the times or the needs of people or the like. And so uh, you have, for example, the Roman Catholic Church or even uh, Anglicans who essentially want to argue for what I would call uh, in the, the position paper, it's called the inventive principle. Uh, I think another way to, to, to determine or to define that principle is what I would call ecclesiastical determination. Uh, so that the church has determination to uh, add ceremonies, to add elements, to add aspects to worship uh, according to uh, certain other principles, whether it be uh, natural law or the customs of the time uh, or what they deem the needs of the people. So, for example, the Roman Catholic Church is going to add, uh, in addition to uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper, uh, they're going to they added on a total of, of five other sacraments. And they've done so uh because they determined, the church determined uh, that these things were necessary for uh, the ignorant, necessary for uh, people to uh, to have communion with God, um, given their state, given whether it was their intellectual state or their moral state. Um, so you have that's one principle, the Roman Catholic or Anglican principle of ecclesiastical determination. Uh, others who would be a bit more closer to home for us as Protestants. That's again not to suggest that Anglicans aren't Protestants, but uh, the, the Lutheran principle uh, of worship is what's called the normative principle, uh, and it's uh, basically that what is not forbidden in Scripture is permitted. Um, so whereas the, the Reformed want to ask the question and we want to ask the question, okay, what is required in worship? What does God want us to do? What is his will for us in worship? Uh, the Lutheran is asking, uh, what is God strictly forbidden? And that we won't do, but everything else is, is permitted uh, according to uh, the wisdom of the church. And then I think there's probably a third principle uh, that's rather typical amongst evangelicals today. And it's what I would call the pragmatic or experiential principle. Uh, and it's whatever uh, we, we, we do in worship, whatever works, whatever woos, or whatever wows. And so the basic principle there is that worship is entertainment. Worship is geared towards an experience of the divine. So I think that's how others would, would answer that, that question. How, how should we worship God? Well, the, the church determines. Um, again, Roman Catholics and Anglicans go down that road go down that route. Uh, the Lutherans want to say, yes, it's the word that determines, but the word determines it by forbidding certain things. Everything else is permitted. And then you get the, the sort of evangelical uh, potpourri of pragmatic, experiential, um, whatever can, can give you that mountaintop experience, whatever can, can drive you to a, a deeper 
uh, higher uh, um, feeling of the divine. I, I guess you know, for the the theological nerds out there, uh, it's kind of the triumph of of Schleiermacher. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you you grew up in a Reformed Baptist church where the regulative principle was um, adhered to. I grew up in a broadly evangelical church where. Uh, the normative principle really ruled the day. In fact, it, it tended towards that pragmatic principle that you mentioned also, what works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? And um, so for years, for me, I, 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 growing up in that church, I always had I had, I had this sense that something's not quite right here. Um, but it took me quite a while uh, to figure out what exactly was not right. Yeah. And, um, you, you know, a number of things helped me along in figuring all that out. Um, but this position paper was one of those things. I also shared it with um, the deacon at Emmaus who is in charge of uh, leading music for us. And um, mm-hmm. he grew up in uh, Assembly of God sort of tradition, went to an Assembly of God school. Um, so definitely was used to very uh, an, an emotional experience in, in mm-hmm. worship. I didn't know how he'd respond to this position paper on the regular principle of worship when I gave it to him years and years ago. But he loved it, you know. It just yeah. made things so clear. It was very freeing, actually, mm-hmm. uh, to finally see that you know what um, God not only commands us to worship in in His Word, but He tells us how. Yeah, and it it was freeing, and that all of a sudden we did not feel um, obligated to always be chasing after the newest fad yeah. in worship. You know, to find what will draw the crowd, what will woo, what will excite people you know, mm-hmm. in this present day. But instead, we're just called to be faithful to do that which God has called us to do. Um, it was a very, very freeing um, experience for, for us, for me, uh, to finally figure out, hey, this is what I've been missing, yeah. you know, this whole time. Well, and it's and it's freeing in part because you know, you come to see that uh, the end, the goal of worship uh, which is it's twofold. I mean, in a uh, it's our in one sense it's our spiritual good. It's the church's spiritual good, but even ultimately it's the glory of God that God doesn't leave it to us to figure out how those two things are accomplished, how those two goals, which are intertwined, how how they're He brings them about. He tells us the means. That he intends to bless, uh, and it's given to the church to um, to offer those means, to engage in those means, and we know that not by some kind of automatic or magical right that those things are accomplished, but God blesses that which He appoints. God blesses that which He appoints for our good and His glory, and so it's given to us to be faithful. Yeah, and that's free. So, if if you were asked to make a case from Scripture for the regular principle of worship, how would you do it? How would you go about making that case? If you had just you know a relatively short amount of time to do it, of course, but uh, where would you start, and and how would you um, you know develop this from Scripture? Sure, well, I think we have to start by understanding uh, that. The regulative principle is is really an intuitive at a biblical level. 
In other words, God tells us in his word just overall about the Christian life and about the the church's life, what it is that's pleasing to him, what it is that honors and glorifies him. Again, we can think of the first question and answer of of the shorter catechism. What is the, the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Okay, so God tells us then in his word how it is that we glorify him and how it is that we enjoy him forever. And specifically as it relates to the church's worship, he tells us in his word uh, how he is glorified and how we enjoy him. Um, and so we look to his word and we go to his word and say, okay, there's going to, if that's all of that's true, there's going to be answers here for us regarding worship, regarding how we worship God uh, aright. And we're also going to come to discover, generally speaking, uh, the truth that God is holy, God is righteous, um, and God is the Lord. And we're going to discover then that we're sinful and that we do not have uh, the intellectual and volitional capacity that is our minds and our wills are not able then in the state of sin uh, to determine what's right, to determine what God uh, deems as holy and righteous uh, for us. And so then, again, we begin to look specifically at specific texts and say, okay, uh, if God is going to instruct us in that which pleases him and that which glorifies him and enables us to enjoy him in communion with him, uh, we're going to need some specifics on this. And he does teach us in his word. He teaches us uh, both by specific precepts uh, and by examples. And we can look, for example, at uh, the, the specific precepts of the law. Uh, think of the first commandment. So who is it that we worship? It's God and God alone. But then if you look at the second commandment and the third commandment, we have very specific instruction there as to what manner of worship is pleasing to God. And I think specifically it's the second commandment that teaches us, uh, you know, the, it's it's explicit that there's a prohibition of images of God. Uh, but if we interpret that aright, we ask the question, okay, not only does this forbid certain things, but it also requires certain things. We have to worship God in the way that he uh, desires, in the way that he appoints uh, in his word. And then we see, again, specific examples of worship that is displeasing to God. Uh, and in every instance, it's worship that is invented by man, worship that is contrary to what God specifically requires. And the, 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 the greatest example of that, I think, is in Leviticus chapter 10 uh, with uh, Nadab and Abihu. They offer this strange fire that's not commanded by God. Um, and so it wasn't for Nadab and Abihu, it wasn't a question of, okay, God has forbidden certain things, and we're permitted to offer this strange fire. But no, God had commanded specific things for the Levites to do in the context of worship, and they went against that. Uh, and they were judged and judged quite severely. But I think 
Uh, in addition to those things, an exposition of the law and specifically the second commandment, I think there's a lot of instruction, uh, even in the New Testament, regarding uh, the regulative principle of worship. Uh, I, I think one of the clearest texts, uh, to my mind, is actually uh, our, our Lord's teaching in John chapter 4. Um, and the context there is uh, he's met the Samaritan woman. Uh, and uh, she's, uh, the Lord speaks to her about true worship. And he tells her uh, that worship, is, uh, that, that God is spirit, and therefore worship must be in spirit and in truth. Now, certainly that means that uh, worship must be sincere worship and spiritual worship. But ultimately, it must be worship that conforms uh, to the very nature of God. If God is spirit, and we are then to worship in spirit and in truth, our worship has to reflect the knowledge of God that God has made known. It has to conform uh, to what God teaches us in his word about himself. Uh, And that's worship that is holy and righteous Uh, and worship that pleases him. And then uh, another key text, I think, is Hebrews chapter 12 uh, and verses 28 and 29. Um, And I'm turning to that text now. Uh, But in the context, um, the author to the Hebrews obviously has argued uh, quite strenuously for the, the superiority of Christ to all of the the shadows of the Old Testament. Um, And he comes to the end of chapter 12, and he draws this conclusion, wherefore, receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us have grace, whereby we may offer service or worship well-pleasing to God. So worship that is pleasing to God, that honors God with reverence and awe. And the basis upon which he argues for this principle of uh, God-honoring worship, a worship conducted with reverence and with awe for God, is that our God is a consuming fire. Verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire. And obviously, uh, the imagery that that uh, invokes, that it, it echoes what took place with Nadab and Abihu. They were consumed by fire for not doing what God had commanded. Uh, And so I think we have here a a specific instance of the scriptures teaching us that we're to do what God uh, commands in worship and only what God commands in worship. Additionally, you have the Apostle Paul's teaching in Colossians chapter 2. Uh, and verses 20 through 23, and specifically his comments against will worship, that is worship that is born of the human will. And the obvious contrast there is worship that conforms to the divine will and not to some uh, mystical or ethereal notion of the divine will, 
But God's revealed will, what he's told us in scripture, is pleasing to him. Uh, And when you take those texts and put them together, and then you come to – come to see that, that, okay, there's this general principle that God is going to tell us what is pleasing to him. God's revealed will, the holy scriptures, which are authoritative, sufficient, and clear, they're going to tell us what God requires and specifically what he requires. And then you put texts together and you see, okay, God commands the reading of the word in scripture. Paul tells Timothy, read this you know, read the scriptures. Um, Paul tells Timothy and Titus, preach the scriptures. So you have the reading of scripture, the preaching of scripture. Uh, We have clear instances of the early church um, engaging in the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper precisely because Christ in the gospels institutes both baptism and the Lord's Supper. So here you have this general principle, okay, what does God, God, God requires worship that is pleasing to him. Okay, what is that worship? What are the elements of that worship? You have the word, the reading of the word and the preaching of the word. You have Christ instituting the sacrament of baptism in Matthew chapter 28. Uh, Christ instituting the Lord's Supper. Uh, we have that recorded in, in uh, three of the gospels. Um, you have Paul's instruction regarding the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 11. And then you have uh, what I think is a very important text for this discussion, which is Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, uh, in which we uh, come to see by way of example what it is that the, the early church engaged in in the context of worship. We're told that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching, which is a reference to the act of teaching, um, and fellowship. They continued steadfastly in fellowship, and uh, I'm of the opinion that what's uh, in view there uh, is um, the, uh, the giving of tithes and offerings, holding all things together in common. Uh, so I think there's an argument for the giving of tithes and offerings as an element of worship. Uh, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching, so the preaching of the word, fellowship, um, the giving of tithes and offerings. Uh, in the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper, so the sacraments, uh, and the prayers. Uh, and these prayers are not only spoken prayers, uh, but they're sung prayers. Uh, so I think you have an example here of the singing of God's word. And there are other texts, obviously, that would in, uh, include um, uh, the singing of God's word, uh, both in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3. And so you have you move from the general principle of worship regulated by God's word to these specific elements that are enumerated across the New Testament uh, that, that give to us. Uh, the what of worship, that which is pleasing to God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think that sometimes people assume uh, that the Old Covenant uh, was very specific concerning how God was to be worshipped. I mean, it is true when we look in the Old Testament, we find that the Old Covenant worship of God was 
quite complex compared to our worship of God under the New Covenant. And there's all sorts of commandments and regulations uh, given. But it's as if Christians assume now that we've passed into the New Covenant era uh, that there are no instructions at all concerning what's to be done in worship. But uh, that's not at all the case. I think you've stated that beautifully, Stefan. Um, uh, to first begin with this principle that you no know, God is still concerned to be worshipped properly mm-hmm. and according to his word. Um, and, well, and there are elements of worship that are clearly stated in uh, the New Testament uh, that we must I, be careful to do. Yeah, And I think that that movement from the old to the new uh, is a movement from not regulated worship to deregulated worship, mm-hmm. but it's a movement from complexity of shadows mm-hmm. to simplicity of fulfillment. And because of the advent of Christ, and, and I think Hebrews chapter 12 addresses this, John chapter 4 addresses this, the Lord Jesus himself addresses this when he's speaking to the Samaritan woman. But you have this movement from uh, complexity of types and shadows to the simplicity of new covenant fulfillment in Christ. But the principle still remains. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship in spirit and uh, truth. And I think I want to say this, too, regarding John chapter 4. The, the beauty of John chapter 4 is that it ties worship not only to the very nature of God as a simple spiritual being, but it ties worship to the gospel itself. If we go back, in fact, to verse 23, the Lord Jesus says, But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such doth the Father seek to be his worshipers. And the Father seeking those who worship him in spirit and truth to be his worshipers is the seeking out of the gospel itself. Christ is here commenting upon his own messianic and mediatorial work that he has come to seek and to save the lost And he has come to seek and to save the lost to make them worshipers of God. So the very end and goal of our salvation is worship. And it's a worship that is defined by who God is. And it's a worship that conforms to the very righteousness and holiness and spiritual nature of God. And therefore... Even in the context of new covenant simplicity, given now the mediation of Christ, there's um, a worship that is regulated by God, by his word. And we have, again, then those specific things that are filled out for us, such as the reading and the preaching of God's word, the singing of his word, um, uh, the praying of his word, and then in the sacraments, the seeing of his word. Well, I think that's a very compelling argument from Scripture. Um, Clearly, we're saying that the New Testament does tell us what we're to do in worship, and our view is that we're not to go beyond that. We're not to incorporate elements uh, that go beyond that, but we're simply to be faithful to what God has called us uh, to do. 
Uh, that's what we believe the scriptures to be teaching. What about our confession? Does our confession yeah. of faith, um, does it set forth the regular principle of worship? I think we could probably spend a lot of time on this, but yes, um, you know, I wonder if you could um, address this uh, fairly briefly. Well, I, I'll, I'll do my best to be brief. Uh, if you know Lindblad's, either Don Lindblad <laughs> or Stefan Lindblad, you know that, that brevity is not our strong suit. Well, whatever. Um, we, we really don't have time constraints, so go for it, brother. You know. <laughs> well, but I, I'll say this: that that in uh, preparing for today, uh, I went and went back and read a number of things that I had read in the past, and and uh, began looking at some other things that I hadn't read, uh, and I found um, uh, John Fesco, who teaches at Westminster in California has a book on uh, the history, or excuse me, the theology of the Westminster Standards. And his chapter on worship is very helpful in terms of explaining uh, in in brief. He doesn't go into a ton of detail, but he gives the historical background uh, to the Westminster uh, Confession and its um, chapter on, on worship. Uh, and as um, you probably know, and most of your hearers probably know, uh, the the language in our confession of faith is uh, almost identical. Very few changes uh, uh, to the, the chapter on worship. Um, so that's that can fill in some of the details uh, that I miss. Um, but the reality is that our confession teaches uh, the regulative principle of worship, uh, and not just as an isolated doctrine. It it does so against the backdrop of uh, its doctrine of scripture, uh, its doctrine of God, uh, and even its doctrine of Christ and um, the benefits of Christ, what we often refer to as uh, soteriology. Um, so, for example, the statements in chapter one uh, regarding the authority of scripture, the sufficiency of scripture, uh, even their statements uh, in chapter one and paragraph eight uh, regarding the need for the scripture to be translated into the common tongue. It, the, the goal of that is so that we may rightly worship God according to his word. Um, you have statements in chapter one, paragraph 10 regarding uh, the fact that, that the church's faith is resolved in scripture. Uh, and so what we believe and what we do, how we worship God even, is regulated by the word of God. Um, so even in chapter one and then again in chapter two on, on the doctrine of God, there are statements there that give to us the foundations for a whole theology of worship. And we could trace that out elsewhere in the confession. Uh, chapter five, dealing with providence. Uh, sets us up for by when it speaks of secondary causes uh, in in um, uh, paragraph two, I believe it is of chapter five. Uh, it sets us up for a theology of the means of grace, which becomes explicit uh, in uh, uh, chapter fourteen in paragraph one that saving faith is ordinarily wrought through. Uh, the the preaching of God's word and then is strengthened by the sacraments of uh, baptism uh, and the Lord's Supper. Uh, when we get a little bit closer to the uh, the chapter on uh, religious worship, uh, we're set up for this doctrine of the regulative principle 
uh, by the, the teaching in chapter 19 regarding uh, the law of God. And so uh, especially in uh, chapter 19, paragraphs 5 through 7, as w- the, the confession deals with the moral law uh, as a rule of life. Uh, again, all of that's background for what the confession teaches explicitly on the re- regulative principle. Um, as well, chapter 20, uh, in uh, especially paragraph 4, when uh, the preaching of the gospel is mentioned as a means of conversion, uh, again, what do we do in worship? Well, we preach the gospel. Why do we do it? Because it's by that means that God is appointed to bring sinners to himself. But then as we get to chapter 21, uh, things get really clear, really explicit regarding the regulative principle. And what the confession does beautifully is that it reminds us that the regulative principle of worship is ultimately related to um, liberty of conscience. We often think of the liberty of conscience um, as giving us the freedom uh, to to engage in things that aren't explicitly forbidden or explicitly required by God's law. So, for example, um, you know, Reformed Christians. Uh, have no um, conscience. Well, that's not the right way to put it, but but Reformed Christians... <laughs> that's really Reformed, a bad way to put it. Brother. Yeah, it is. It's a terrible <laughs> way to put it. Reformed Christians, the, 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 our conscience is not bound by, for example, the strictures of a bygone fundamentalism, which would say, don't don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with those who do. I mean, to to put it really badly. Um, There's no explicit teaching in scripture which says you cannot enjoy an alcoholic beverage. So, but that's that's not the real beauty of the doctrine of, of the liberty of conscience and the freedom of conscience. The real beauty is that it, that, and chapter 21 of our confession makes this so clear that we in Christ, through the mediation of Jesus Christ, we have been freed not only from sin, but we've been freed from the doctrines and commandments of men mm-hmm. and freed unto the true service of God. Yeah. So in, in the state of sin, we are not free. In the state of sin, we are bound in sin and we are bound to do that which is displeasing to God. In the state of grace, however, by the virtue, by the merit of Jesus Christ, we are freed from sin and freed unto the true service of God. We are freed, we're able now by the grace of God to please God. For this, but because of Jesus Christ. And that also means, and this is in line with Colossians 2 and verses 20 through 23, we're freed from the doctrines, from the commandments, from the inventions of, of man. And so uh, as those who have received the benefits of Jesus Christ, those benefits that are enumerated and explained in chapters 10 through 18 of the Confession— 
uh, we now have the freedom to worship God as God commands in his word. And so then you get to chapter 22, right? And you have a, in chapter, uh, paragraph one of that chapter, you have a, the, probably the clearest statement of the regulative principle that's ever been written. Um, that that uh, even though uh, the light of nature, natural um, uh, revelation, shows us that there is a God and that that God is our creator, he is our ruler, um, that, that that's not sufficient for showing us how we're to worship this God. And so the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. Yeah, that's clear, isn't it? Yeah. And, and again, the key, the key terms there are, pres- are prescribed, instituted, limited by his own revealed will. So we're, we're being told here not only that there are certain things we can't do, but that given the freedom we have in Christ, we, there are certain things we must do. We must do that which is prescribed by God, that which is instituted by God that which is told to us in his revealed will. And it's not what men say, and it's not what Satan says. And by the way, historically, um, Satan is here probably a a little jab at the the Roman Catholic Church. Um, But but nevertheless, uh, it's true. Neither man nor Satan can teach us that which we need in order to worship God aright. God teaches us that, and it's in his word. And so then, then the confession goes on to remind us uh, in, in paragraph 2 of chapter 22, um, who we worship, God alone, and the triune God alone, and how we approach him and worship, specifically only through the mediation of Jesus Christ. And So again, the confession is here taking us back to its teaching in chapter 8 regarding Christ the mediator, um, as well as chapter 2 regarding the teaching on the Holy Trinity. Um, But we have clear statements as to who we worship, how we approach him in worship, and then the remainder of of the chapter gives us clear indication as to, to the specific elements of worship. Uh, we're to pr- pray according to God's will, um, chapter 22 and paragraph 3. Chapter 22 and paragraph 4, prayer is to be for things lawful, that is, things that are regulated by God's word. Um, and then specifically as well in, in uh, paragraph 5, uh, the reading and the preaching and the hearing of the scriptures. Is it, that's important to notice. We do often talk about um, the reading of Scripture and the preaching of Scripture, but when we think of the Word as an element of worship, 
we're also including there the hearing of of the word and the hearing of the word aright. And I think the Westminster Shorter Catechism and larger catechisms give to us very helpful instruction regarding the the conscionable hearing of the word of God. That is the hearing of God's word in good conscience. Uh, and your hearers can can look those things up at a later time. But hearing the word of God is an act of worship, is an element of worship. It's included in worship, and it's regulated by God's word. Um, but but again, what, what we're discovering here in the context of the confession are the, the, the elements of worship, uh, prayer, and prayer uh, that is lawful, that is according to God's word and according to his will, uh, the reading of the scriptures, the preaching of the scriptures, the hearing of the scriptures. Um, and then our confession mentions uh, specifically uh, the singing of hymns, spiritual songs, or psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. They're an allusion uh, to Colossians 3.16 and Ephesians 5.19. Uh, so the singing of the word of God. Then also in that same paragraph, uh, the the Lord's Supper, or sorry, baptism in the Lord's Supper. And it, we're told here that all of these things are parts of the religious worship of God to be performed in obedience to him with understanding, faith, reverence, and godly fear. So you have a very clear statement, not only generally at the very beginning of this um, chapter regarding the regulative principle, but you have a very clear enumeration of those things, those elements of worship that are authoritatively, sufficiently, and clearly prescribed by God in his word as that which pleases him uh, in worship. And then, obviously, the, as you go on in the confession, um, the 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 church the chapter on the church chapter 26 paragraph 7 uh, the church is called to carry out Christ's will regarding worship and it's furnished by Christ to do so it's equipped by Christ to that very end uh, and then uh, the the regulative principle is affirmed in chapter 28 uh, the teaching regarding the sacraments uh, that these sacraments are uh, sovereign and positive institutions of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Christ has instituted these sacraments, these ordinances in his word, um, and we are to uh, observe them uh, and to observe them precisely as he has commanded in his word. That's as short as I can be on no, the, the teaching of the confession. Yeah, yeah. No, that was that was really well done, and I'm glad you took the time to uh, to walk through all of that. Uh, it was still very concise. Um, so, when you walk into a reformed church and you notice that their worship is very simple, mm-hmm. um, only a few things are done week after week, Lord's Day after Lord's Day. It's not because we are not creative people. <laughs> right mm-hmm. uh, it's because we believe that these are the things that are to be done in worship and right. and nothing else um i do love that doctrine of christian liberty uh, just yeah. as it would be wrong for us to forbid people from doing things which the scriptures um do not forbid mm-hmm. uh, so too it is wrong for us to 
insist that people do things that the scriptures do not command either. Yeah. And that's what happens when um, you introduce these um, novel ideas into the worship of God. You're actually demanding that all who are in attendance participate in that, yeah. uh, even even though they might object to it. And you're, Yeah, you're binding the conscience before God. Mm-hmm. You're saying God has said in his word, you must do this. And if there's no clear command, if there's no clear prescription, how can anyone bind the believer's conscience to do that thing in worship? Right. That's very good. Hopefully. And that's an, ex- that's, that's an application, too, of the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture, mm-hmm. of the doctrine of sola scriptura. Mm-hmm. We neither add to nor take away from the word of God. And so when it comes to the worship of God, we neither add to it nor take away from it, but we do only and all that God requires in the context of worship. Yeah. So I, I, um, I've heard this objection before to the regular principle of worship that really it breeds traditionalism. And I, and I think the reason people will sometimes level that criticism is that um, they assume what we are saying is that every church, their worship needs to look exactly the same, you know, so so that the worship at Emmaus Reformed Baptist Church needs to look exactly like the worship at, at Trinity Church, Reformed Baptist Church in Washington. That's really not what we're saying, though. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we do admit, uh, and I think this position paper does a really wonderful job at this, we do admit that our worship might look somewhat different depending upon our context. Would you help kind of unravel all that, Stefan? Uh, did I set that up okay for you? Yeah, I, th- I think there's, there's a couple of things to keep in mind. First of all, um, when it comes to worship and the regular principle, we're talking specifically about the elements of worship. And the manner in which those elements of worship are uh, uh, performed or, or, or undertaken. Uh, performed is not always the best word to use when, when talking about worship. But the way in which we fulfill the obligations that we have uh, in the context of worship. So, uh, again, the confession is very clear that we're to, we are, we're to read, read, preach, and hear the word. We're to sing the word, we're to observe the sacraments, uh, and we're to do so in faith, with godly fear, with humility. So as, as you go from one church to another, that's, those are the things that should be monolithic. Mm-hmm. They should be the same from one place to the other. Now, what may differ would be the circumstances of worship. So what time your worship services are on Sunday, um, whether or not you use a microphone, you know, if you've only got 20 people, is there really a need for a microphone? Well, not really, but if you've got a congregation of 400, you're going to need to amplify so everyone can hear. So those things might change. Um, but the substance the elements and the manner in which those elements are um, practiced and observed, those things aren't going to change. Um, 
then there's the question of, of forms and the question of liturgical forms. Uh, and those things might vary as well. The order in which you do certain things, um, those things are going to have some variation to them as well. Um, and I think in, in our tradition specifically, you look at uh, the, uh, for example, the, the, the Westminster Divines, when they wrote this uh, chapter on the worship of God, they didn't. They didn't write a a strict liturgical form. Instead, they wrote the Westminster Directory for Public Worship, which gave guidelines and directions, but didn't put a stranglehold on the particular order of worship. Um, so again, those things are going to differ from one context to the other. Um, even even the very language that's used as a as a uh, as, as an American as a citizen of the United States of America who speaks English, I should not expect to go to Cuba and hear them um, worshiping God in the English language. Right? They're gonna they're gonna do that in the common tongue, just as we're going to do that in our common tongue. So again. Those things will, are, will differ, but the elements shouldn't differ. And the manner in which we conduct ourselves in engaging those elements uh, shouldn't differ. Now, to the question of, um, I think there was part of this question was on, on traditionalism, right? Right, yeah. How, how, uh, you know, I, I think we have to distinguish between good tradition and bad tradition, the question that we have to ask ourselves is whether we're promoting good tradition um, or promoting bad tradition. And the goal for us as Christians and as the church is to promote good tradition and and eschew or get rid of that which is bad tradition. So we have to ask the question, well, how do we determine, how do we distinguish between good tradition and bad tradition? And the answer is scripture. But we also have to remember that we're not the first Christians to ever read the Bible. So we have to read the scriptures and interpret the scriptures with the church universal, the church Catholic, the church down through the ages. And that's, I think, exactly what the reformers were trying to do in their context they believed that they were retrieving true worship, they were retrieving good tradition, and they were getting rid of bad tradition. Um, and especially as you, I've read quite a bit on the, the history of, of uh, the Reformed doctrine of the Lord's Supper. And so much of that history is the Reformers arguing actually from the church fathers that the church fathers were on their side. The, the church fathers actually taught what they did. Now, again, that's you can debate that question uh, specifically, but they wanted to say, look, the church Catholic, the church universal is teaching what we're teaching. So we're just trying to retrieve it. We're trying to recover good tradition, biblical tradition. And so really when you ask the question of traditionalism, you have to say, 
it's not it's not that we want to get rid of all tradition because when you get rid of one tradition you're actually inventing another tradition everybody has tradition the question is not whether you have a tradition but the question is which tradition and the tradition we all want is to be biblical but in order to to be biblical and be faithful, we have to realize, again, we're not the first people to ever read the Bible. We're not the first people to ever interpret the Bible. We're not the first generation of Christians ever to worship God. And I think that that's what I find so alarming about um, many evangelicals today, is that the way in which they're worshiping God is, is a form of worship that, that is relatively new, relatively novel, and has no connection to the historic church, um, and really no connection to the New Testament church, to the primitive church. So when we ask the question of traditionalism, you just have to say, okay, evangelicals, they have their tradition. They have their choruses. They have their lighthearted sermons that, you know, they have their motivational talks. However you want to describe evangelical worship, there's a tradition there. And so again, it's not a question of whether or not we're going to be traditional in some sense, but which tradition and what's the root and the ground and the foundation of that tradition. And we're saying it ought to be scripture. Uh, Scripture is uh, the thing that regulates um, our, our worship. Uh, from from beginning to end, um, one of the things mm-hmm. that I was comforted by uh, when um, going through this position paper originally is that um, it, it is promoting that our worship be substantially biblical. Yes, um, but also it does seem to leave room uh, and freedom to to determine some of these non substantial things. Uh, these um, what do you call them? Accidents of, of worship. Um, yeah, the circumstances. Circumstances of worship. Of worship. I, I forgot right. the term there. Um, I, I appreciated that. You know, our church, uh, we came out of a, an evangelical church, and so we've been reforming over the past six and a half years. And I think our, our worship, our music in particular, has reformed as well as we've been striving for greater simplicity, but also more and more reverence in our worship. But truth be told, mm-hmm. uh, our music doesn't look exactly like the music or sound exactly like the music in, in every other Reformed Baptist church. Um, but but I think um, this regulative principle of worship has had a tremendous impact upon us mm-hmm. to be sure that what we are singing is biblical, um, that yep. it is reverent, that it is Christ-centered, that it is not about emotion, um, and that it is congregational, that it promotes the, 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 um, the congregation, mm-hmm. uh, encourages the congregation to sing um, yeah. in worship to well, God. So I appreciate and, that. Yeah, and I, and I think... I think that that music and song is probably one of the greatest uh, sticking points uh, for people coming to terms with the regulative principle of worship. Mm -hmm. And people often ask the question of, okay, if the regulative principle is true, what does that mean about worship style? And I think that if we if we worry so much about worship style and the particular uh, music that we use, we've put the, the cart before the horse. 
I think those things follow mm-hmm. upon these principles of really sound theology determining the nature and character of our worship services. So we have to ask the question again, who is God? Who are we in light of God? Who are we in our sin? Who are we now in Christ? What is it then that, how is it then that Christ regulates our worship according to his revealed will? And when we ask those questions first, I think the question of style sort of kind of fades into oblivion and we really have to say, okay, we need to undertake these things with reverence and with awe. And that means then that we evaluate things like music by looking carefully at the words and we say, okay, there might be old hymns that are, are terrible because their words are not fitting to the true worship of God. And we might find that something new is actually more uh, appropriate to the worship of God. So we don't get rid of, we don't just sanction the old because it's old. And we don't simply curse or get rid of the new because it's new. The regulative principle actually gives us a framework in, in which to evaluate Everything that we sing, whether it was composed 500 years ago or five years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well said. Stefan, I really appreciate you um, taking the time to record with me today, but obviously you've put some effort into preparing for this. I know these have been things that have been on your mind for some time, but I, I appreciate you putting the time into uh, refreshing on the subject. Um, I think this is going to be very helpful uh, to our people and whoever else uh, decides to listen in to this episode, um, this subject is so important. We should care deeply about mm-hmm. the worship of God. Yes. And if we care deeply about the worship of God, we should very quickly ask the question, how, how is our God to be worshipped? Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I hope that Christians do not dismiss this topic lightly, but consider it deeply. Um, do you have any books that you would recommend on this subject? You mentioned Fesco's book and in, in, in how it helps with understanding the the Westminster, Westminster Confession, but what about on the subject more broadly of the re- regulative principle of worship? Yeah, I, I think there's a number of books. Uh, the the the, uh, the paper, the uh, position paper of Arca, which was written, I, I want to say 2001. Am I? I, I yeah, might... you're right. So obviously, there there are things that have been written subsequently that that might be of help, and the and the. The recommended reading there is is um, appropriate, uh, obviously, but I think there's there's some more uh, books that have come out subsequently, um, or either other things that are, that aren't mentioned there that are, are very helpful. And I don't have the paper in front of me, so I can't remember specifically what books are there. But some that have been very helpful for me at a very popular level uh, and very simple and straightforward level. There's a little pamphlet by uh, Robert Godfrey um, uh, called Pleasing God in Our Worship, uh, and it uh, was published in 1999, uh, and I think uh, Crossway um, um, published it. And he, and he actually, he, uh, I think he, if I remember correctly, deals quite a bit with 
some of the texts that I mentioned, Hebrews 12, uh, as well as uh, uh, John chapter 4. So that's very helpful. Um, There's another book by uh, D.G. Hart and John Meather with reverence and awe, returning to the basics of Reformed worship. Uh, That's an excellent book uh, written at a very accessible level. Um, and apart from what they have to say about infant baptism, I can wholeheartedly recommend it. Um, and then if you want to dig deeper into uh, some of the, the history, uh, the, the background uh, of um, uh, our confessional statements uh, and even uh, the 17th century context, uh, a massive work by William Ames uh, entitled A Fresh Suit Against Human Ceremonies and the Worship of God. Uh, quite a bit there uh, to chew on. Um, and then uh, two other books, I think, that that uh, are very helpful that actually touch on a subject we didn't talk much about today. Uh, they're both written by um, T. David Gordon. One is uh, Why Johnny Can't Preach. And then probably more appropriately, um, Why Johnny Can't Sing Hymns. And the subtitle is How Pop Culture Rewrote the Hymnal. Um, and T.D.F. Gordon uh, is um, someone who has looked into uh, the way in which media, the way in which, and media not, not in terms of the news media, but medium, the way um, things like music, uh, television, uh, the way in which information is communicated, uh, the way in which that affects and shapes the way we think, uh, and uh, in the context of the church, the way in which we worship. So um, those books by T. David Gordon are very instructive. Well, thank you for those uh, recommendations. And um I think we need to wrap this up. This has been really great, really great stuff. And so thank you so much for, again, putting the effort into this. And I hope to see you uh, soon. Hopefully I'll see you, Lord willing, at the General Assembly up in North mm-hmm. Dakota in May, right? That's rapidly approaching. It is. Uh, it is. Look forward to that very much. Um, to the listener, I would simply encourage you to check back with us from time to time as we uh, continue to publish these podcasts, these episodes Um, Until then, I would encourage you to abide in Christ. Thank you for listening.